0: Well, this morning we uh, tackle a difficult subject, or a, a different subject than we normally tackle on a Sunday morning. Uh, this is actually a very manly message. Men ladies like to figure things out. We passed by a semi on the way back from Georgia that had lumber on it, and within about 15 minutes we figured out how many boards, the length, the dimensions of those boards, how much each board cost, and we figured out the cost that was on the back of that semi. You know, this, I can't imagine women coming back from Beth Moore doing that, so... Men love to conquer, whether it's fishing, whether it's a hobby, whether it's music. All men love to conquer something. So this morning we talk about the proofs of the existence of God. We leave our Bibles alone at this point because we are going to delve into what's called logical facts. Now the Bible you have in your hand is revelation facts. God has revealed Himself through the pages of Scripture. He doesn't explain Himself. The Bible is not for the proof of God. You know that because it opens up and says, In the beginning, God. No desire to explain Himself. He declares Himself to be God and certain things about Him. Those are revelation facts. We don't deal with revelation facts this morning. This morning we deal with a set of facts of logical nature. Well, why do this? I ran by... The topic this morning with Lorelai yesterday morning, I said, Lorelai. She said, what, Papa? I I said, do you believe that there's a God? She said, yes. I said, do you believe there's a person named Jesus Christ? She said, yes. I said, have you ever met and seen Jesus Christ? She said, no. I said, well, how do you know he exists? She thought for a second. She said, leave me alone, Papa. (laughs) And off she went to play. Well, that's a pretty good response to the atheist, to the agnostic, leave me alone. I'm just going to believe this. But there are people who will not leave you alone. And there are professors in college, and there are atheistic campuses all over America, and there are these kind of folks and your workplace. And wherever you go, you're going to run into folks who do not believe in the existence of God. This morning, I simply give you four classical arguments about the existence of God. Put your thinking caps on because... We're going to delve into some difficult intellectual issues, so think with me this morning, as I want you to do every Sunday morning we meet. We are looking at the ontological argument, which is basically in logic and <coughs> projects an image of perfect being. There is the ontological argument. We're going to go through these. I'm just going to give them briefly to you. The ontological argument that basically deals with the logic of man. that you don't need anything out there to figure out there's a God. You can figure them out right here if you follow this ontological argument introduced by a guy named Anselm. All right, second of all, there's the cosmological argument. That is the argument from creation. The idea that there is a creation to look at. Where did that creation come from? Some have called this the first cause argument. We'll talk about that. And it projects an image of an eternal being. That this creation is finite. Where did it come from? It had to come from infinitude. Thirdly, we're going to talk about the teleological argument, which is the argument from design. And it projects an image of intelligence behind everything that we see. And thirdly, we're going to talk about the moral law argument. This projects a moral law And it projects a creator who is morally perfect. Now let me stop and say this. None of these arguments to lost people will get them saved. This is not about leading a person to Christ and convincing them about the existence of God so that they're born again. You get that from revelation facts you find in your Bible. But they won't even look at the Bible because they don't think God exists. This is to get them to even look at the Bible which will lead them to Christ. Because you can convince somebody that God exists, but they won't come to Christ like that. So, first of all, are you ready? Ready to go on this journey with me? First, the ontological argument introduced by a guy named Anselm. He was a philosophical uh, theologian in the 11th century, and this is how the argument runs. Of the four, this is the most difficult to follow. Don't expect to get this the first time. Take it home with you. Chew on it. By the way, if you're a note taker, this is a perfect time to write things down. Ontological argument. Now, for sake of time, I have not PowerPointed these things to come up, so be disciplined to follow the lines with me. Ready? First of all is this. In order to say that there is no God, Psalm 53, 1, Anselon looked at it and said, The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. In order to say that there is no God, you must have a concept in your mind of who God is. Everybody with me? A lost person will, will agree with that. In order to say there's no God, you have to have a concept of God. Now, something can exist in the mind that isn't necessarily in reality. I hope there's no kids among us, because I'm going to say something to you that might shock some of you. In my mind, I can conceive of Santa Claus. He's not real, though. But I can conceive of him. Some of you all, I've lost you for the entire sermon now. <laughs> I can imagine Santa Claus, the Easter Bunny. I know he's not real. So insulin differentiated between what you can imagine based or, and what is real. I can imagine Bill Clinton in my mind. He is real. You see the difference? So insulin differentiated, to follow the argument. Thirdly, that which exists in reality is always higher than that which exists in the mind. Bill Clinton, because he's real, is higher than Santa Claus who's not real. Now here is the crux of the argument and this is the direct quote from Anselm in his treatise. Anselm said this that God by pure definition that there is no greater than can be conceived. God by definition nothing higher can be imagined or conceived above God. If anything was higher conceived above God he wouldn't be God. Follow it? Therefore number four if he just existed in the mind, he would be less than the highest, therefore, God must exist look i 've been grappling with this for months, I think i 'm finally getting it a little bit. This is tough thinking, but that 's einlan 's argument logically you don 't have to look at the deers running across the field you don't have to, you don 't have to look at create' look at anything. figure it out in your mind. You have to conceive of a God. If you say there is no God, you must have a conception of Him. And if you have a concept of God, He must be real. Because if, he is, if there's nothing higher than can be imagined above God, and a reality is higher than a conception, therefore the conception you have, He must be real. Got it? Y'all do like the dog in the back of the windshield of the car. That's hard thinking, man, isn't it? That's the hardest thing we're going to think about this morning, okay? But that was ont- an ontological and, uh, argument of the existence of God. By the way, anta is being or essence, and that's where the logic comes from, that we have being and essence, therefore we must be created by one who has being and essence. Number two, the cosmological argument. You ready? This is an argument from creation to the creator. Follow the argument. Every finite and contingent being has a cause. Stop there. Don't read anything below there. Every finite and contingent being has a cause. Everything that exists works toward an end. Everything. And mostly it has to do with reproduction and carrying on whatever it is. If it's grass... It works through the end of throwing a seed out that will create more grass. You follow me? Everything has an end, a cause, a reason for being. Lorelei was on the back porch last night, and, uh, or yesterday, and she let out a blood-curdling scream. And I thought, well, there must be a pygmy rattler out there for her to scream like that. I went out, and it was a two-inch earthworm that was on the concrete. She said, Papa, it's moving. I said, yeah, they they do that. I thought her father's probably tormenting her with earthworms at night. Even an earthworm has a purpose and end to propagate itself. This is the argument from creation to the creator. This This was introduced by Plato and Aristotle. They called him the prime mover, the uncaused cause the unmoved mover. If that is true, that every finite and contingent being that exists has a cause, a causal loop cannot exist. In other words, that which causes something to be cannot loop around like this. It had to go back to a beginning. It had to go back to a first cause. You break down anything to its lowest common denominator, and what caused that? Scientists cannot tell you. Biologists cannot tell you where life came in the cell. They can't do it. What was the first cause? Even those who say, oh, there was a big bang. Well, where did the stuff from the big bang come that caused the big bang? Track it back to its finest. <clears throat> Number three, a causal train chain cannot be of infinite length. It had to start somewhere. Basically, nothing cannot make something. I want you to picture something in your mind right now. Go ahead and close your eyes and I want you to imagine nothing. Go ahead. I see some of your eyes open. Close your eyes and imagine nothing. What do you see when you imagine nothing? Darkness is something. Watch this. It is impossible for you to imagine nothing. Why? Because you have being. You have essence. You have something. You cannot imagine nothing. If this chain is not infinite, it had to start somewhere. And some, and that which is created now could not create itself because nothing can't create something unless there was something at the very beginning that is uncaused, unmoved, that created and started the chain that we find where we're at now. If you came into a field and you saw a turtle on top of a fence post, your first question would be, who put the turtle there? Because a turtle cannot climb a fence post. Someone put the turtle on the fence post. That's all this argument says. There is a creation. This creation is finite. The second law of thermodynamics says this. It says that the energy in our solar system, in our universe, is running out. It does not stay steady. It is burning out. The universe is also expanding. Now follow this. If something is burning out, it is not infinite. It is finite. If it is finite, it had a beginning. Who started the beginning of it all? There's not an atheist, agnostic, that can tell you that question. Can't answer. They don't know. That's why Aristotle called the idea of God a philosophical necessity. This is the cosmological argument from creation to creator. Yesterday, I was cut, two days ago, I was cutting my grass, and I have a sprinkler system in the backyard, and, I, and my lawn has about five or six sprinklers on this one system, Now I don't cut my grass every second of, of my life. I'm out there a couple times, well, every week, week and a half, I'm cutting grass depending on growth. Now, watch this what happened. This is a strange thing. I'm cutting the grass, and as I go over a certain spot, all of a sudden, a six-foot plume of water hits me in the face. And I realized, what are the chances of this? At the very second I was going over a sprinkler head, the system came on. What are the chances of that? And so I ran, and turn the system off. I think, that I mean, over the very, you understand that the, the, the mathematical unlikeliness that this is going to happen? That at the very moment, I'm cutting grass once every two weeks. I'm over the very spot, the system comes on. I clip the top of it all over the place i tell you something it's just as strange as that. This, this, of course, parts went everywhere. This morning, I took the trash out 15 feet away from that sprinkler. I step on a part that I broke off. What are the chances of that? You can't find this stuff in the grass once it's down. I step, I look down, there's a piece. How weird is that? How strange is that? It's God's will for me to hold this piece in front of you and explain how weird all this is. For everything around us to fall in the creation that it is, one scientist said it's like taking a three-by-three box, planting it 20 light-years away, 20 light-years away, shooting an arrow and hitting it square in the middle. That is the likelihood that this all just happened without any cause at all. This is the cosmological argument. Therefore, a first cause, something that didn't have an effect upon itself, must exist. It had to. An eternal being, an infinite being, a self existing being that didn't, that nothing started him with the cause that we have. All right, let's move on. Number three, the cause, the teleological argument. This was introduced by Thomas Aquinas, who was a theologian in the Middle Ages. There's Thomas. And this is what he said Every agent acts for an end, every agent has purpose and cause. Everything that exists. Exists for a reason. Yes, that cockroach has a reason it was existing. But every bit of creation always acts toward an end. What acts for an end manifests intelligence. This is the argument from design to the designer. This is what some have called in our age intelligent design. Every, whatever acts for an end manifests intelligence. A sunflower, when the sun moves across the sky, will move toward the sun. Is a sunflower intelligent? No. It is manifesting intelligence. There was a small pond down at the base of the chalets up in North Carolina or Georgia. And it was full of fish, big fish, big catfish, big bass, also a million frogs. I came out that morning and thought it was cows bellowing. You know, they'll bellow in the morning. It was bullfrogs bellowing in the morning. So, as our crew does, James went down there at night and, and, and belly-whopped himself and caught a couple bullfrogs that he decided he was going to use for bait. Now, this, these, the smallest one he had was like this. So the next day, all the men came down because they wanted to see what this would look like. And so they hooked the bullfrog under the, under the bottom lift and out he threw it. It looked like a Duck Dynasty moment if you ever wanted to see it. Just to watch that bullfrog, flap! Every time it did, we just roared in laughter. I got it on film. It's just hilarious to watch happen. The bullfrog made one of two decisions to protect himself. He would try. He would flop on his back and he would play dead as James reeled him in. wasn't moving, okay? wasn't moving, just playing dead. If he got on his belly, he blew up big. Now, why did he blow up big? So the fish who's looking at him is thinking, "Can I get this in my mouth?" I don't think I can fit that thing in my mouth. Let me look at it again. As the bass swims by, he's looking at the and the frog getting real big. Now, is the frog intelligent? No. He is displaying intelligent design. A lot of animals do that when you run up on the griff, You're real big. you big. You can't eat me. I'm too big. I caught a puffer fish one time. Puffer fish is a great little fish. A little skinny thing until you get it up on, until you get it scared. It gets real big. Those spiky things. It's really light. You can pause it, and it's, it's it, it, like a softball. It sits there in your hand. Throw it back in the water. Back down short, and and off it goes. Why does it blow up big? To scare its enemy. It is displaying intelligent design. There are a million illustrations of this all through creation. If you were from outer space, listen carefully. If you were from outer space, and you came on this planet and you didn't know the language, and you picked up a McDonald's wrapper on the corner, and you saw a big M, and you saw verbiage on there. You couldn't read it. The natural thing for you, if you're from outer space to figure, there must be intelligent life on this planet. Uh, William Pauley wrote a book in 1902 called Natural Theology, and Pauley postulated this idea. It's called the idea of a watchmaker. Listen carefully. One day a man came into a watchmaker's shop and saw the beautiful watches all over displayed ornately and inside intricate work done inside the clocks that he was looking at the watches. And he asked the watchmaker, who made these beautiful watches? And the watchmaker said this, well, this used to be an abandoned warehouse. And one day a huge explosion happened. It rocked the entire block. And when the dust settled and the flames abated and we got to look at it, all of a sudden we came into this building and all these beautiful watches were on the wall. The fellow looked at him and said, that's ridiculous. And he said, yeah, it is, isn't it? That something as intricate and beautiful and as masterful as the creation. You know, if you didn't have spiders, the world would be overrun with insects. Did you know that? Everything works. If there's a watch, there's a watchmaker. You got his point? So, therefore, they are directed toward their end by some intelligence. A great design demands a great designer. I want to show you one thing before we move on. This is a bacteria flagella. Flagella is French for whip. This is a tail that sticks out of certain cells of your body, and it is a whip that will turn a hundred times a minute that fast. Now, I want you to look at the intricacy of this bacteria flagella. It has different parts. It has a propeller, a filament on the back, and you can read all the parts. It has an M ring, an S ring, it has membranes in there. It has different rotors and shafts and studs and C rings. Do You know what you're looking at? This is, this is inside of your body in bacteria, that, in, in cells that need to move around, and this pro- propels them through your body so it can move and do the things it needs to do. Do you know what you're looking at? You're looking at a motorboat pr- propeller. That's what you're looking at. This is the design for a motorboat. This is a creation of God. Now put your thinking caps on with me and go with me for a moment. Charles Darwin suggested or wrote of evolution, that, the, that we came from tadpoles and frogs and sprouted legs, and we are the higher. And by the way, those evolutionists believe that the next quantum jump is coming soon, the new age, right? That man is going to shed all this. That's another topic. Let me not get on that. Let me stay with the propeller, Okay. He suggested that this world evolved, and, he, and, and it, that it evolved toward what he called natural selection. That means the survival of the fittest. That means whatever didn't work was rejected. Whatever didn't work was rejected. Whatever didn't work was rejected, until until we evolved into the higher apes that we are. Got that? What you're looking at. It's called irreducible complexity. Now, don't let that scare you. I'm going to explain it to you. What you're looking at behind me is irreducible complexity. A nutcracker has irreducible complexity. A nutcracker has about five different parts. If you remove any one of those parts, you no longer can crack nuts. Right here, all these parts, if you take away any part of that, flagellum it will not whip around it has what's called irreducible complexity everybody with me if evolution's true which it is not if it were true and natural selection was true this organism would have been rejected long ago this thing had to be made all at once it could not have evolved if it was evolving natural selection would have rejected it This thing was made at one time by one great creator and designer who created something so intricate and so small within us and yet look at the design of that thing. Amazing. Last argument. The moral argument. So you have the ontological argument that if he exists in the mind, he must exist in reality. You have the cosmological argument of first cause. Go back, 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 back. As far as you can go, something had to start it. And what's existent now could never have started it because it's finite and caused. There had to be an uncaused cause to it all. Then he had the teleological argument, the idea of the great design all around us. And that if there is a great design, there must be a great designer. And number four, the moral argument. There is an absolute moral ideal that exists on this planet. Every one of us have it. How do you know right from wrong? How do you know what evil is? Evil is the absence of good. If you do not have a moral law, you do not know what is good and what is evil. Everyone has it. I went down to Krispy Kreme a couple nights ago. line was still wrapped around the building. But I wanted a Krispy Kreme. I wanted a hot one. Right out of the grease. Okay. There's a line of 15, 20 people. There's something wrong waiting for, for, through 20 people for a hot Krispy Kreme. So I got mad. I got upset. I said, this is it. So what I did, I parked my car and I went right past all those 20 people. I got right in front of the line. I said, I'm going next. Forget you. <laughs> you ever been thrown out of Krispy Kreme physically? <laughs> I wouldn't dare do that. I'm telling you, man. You t- I-, I told Karen, I said, you know, if we went by Krispy Kreme in Mandarin. Wasn't anybody in there. But you take a Krispy Kreme away for a few years from a bunch of West Siders. <laughs> I almost use the R word, but I'm not going to do that. <laughs> you take a Krispy Kreme away for a couple of years from a bunch of West Siders, and then you put it back there. You just you're, you're asking for trouble. How do you know not to break in line? Because you know that's wrong. We were coming home from the trip, and it was a long eight nine, eight hour trip, and we were burnt out, exhausted. We got we got a couple miles away. From Suncoast down 295, and there's this long line. I'm at like 50 cars, backed up for some kind of construction thing, you know? So I do the right thing. I get in the left lane with everybody else, and I'm crawling. And from the behind, I hear, turn right. Go to the right lane. Go to there's nobody over there. There's nobody over there. I, said, I can't do that. Do it. Do it. Do it. So I had enough. I just pulled in that right lane and cut it in front of 30, 40 cars. That's not the response I was expecting. And the whole time I'm going by, I'm thinking, I wonder if they can read the church at Suncoast on the side of the bus. <laughs> That's a bunch of members we'll never have right there. How do you know right from wrong? Richard Dawkins has gone so far as to say that there is no such thing as evil. Ravi Zacharias was leaving India a few years back, sat down next to a lady who rescues children from all over the world from a terrible situation. She told Ravi of a situation in Snake Alley in India. There's a place in Snake Alley where men go and drink snake's blood along with hard liquor and get crazy in their minds. And this lady rescued an 18-month-old little baby girl from sexual abuse. And you tell me there's no such thing as evil? How do we know what evil is because of good? The moral argument goes like this. There is an absolute moral ideal. It exists. This moral ideal exists to some degree intrinsically in every man. A perfect moral law can only exist if there's a perfect moral mind somewhere. Therefore, an absolute mind is the base absolutely perfect mind is the basis for an absolute perfect moral law or idea. A moral code, which is in us all, demands there is a moral code leader and giver. You have to. There is no command without a commander. It is impossible. Let me give you three principles and I'm done. You've been very patient. This has been kind of long. First of all, there's there's a difference between logical facts and revelation facts. These facts won't get anybody to heaven. But maybe they'll help somebody realize there is a God so they can go to the Scripture and that God has declared himself to be true. God has declared himself to have sent his Son to die for our sins. There's no explanation of the Gospel. There's a declaration. We simply tell you that you're lost because you're a sinner. We tell you simply because the Scripture says, the Gospel said, Jesus died for your sin. The blood shed on the cross in order to cleanse and forgive and make you right with God by grace and grace alone. That is not an explanation. I don't explain that to you. I declare that to you. Because that's what the scripture says. I declare to you after Jesus paid for those sins, he was buried. I declare to you that he rose from the dead, that he has ascended to the right hand of the Father, and that all those who believe on him and what he did on that cross are born from above. A life outside of them comes into them, changing them at the very core. It is almost like they are born anew, born afresh, born from above. I declare that to you. I'm not going to explain it to you. It is, it is, it is reason. Look, it is appealed not to your logical mind. It is appealed to your faith to believe that. That is not a violation of your logical mind. That's a recognition that your logical mind can only take you so far. And then when it gets you to that point, faith takes over, and I believe I'm along with Lorelai. Leave me alone. I believe. Number two. Logical facts never produce faith, but they can lead toward revelation of faith. And the third one is this. Men are at the core willfully ignorant of revelation facts. I sat with a group of atheists a few months ago, about a dozen of them all alone, shared with them for about an hour the gospel as we talked about God. And I thought... I'll go down the moral code giver route. And I said to the leader of the group this. I asked him this. Is it wrong to murder someone? He said, well, that depends on how you define murder. I said, I take a gun out and point it to your head and shoot you right in the head with a bullet. He said, why would you do that? I said, I don't know. It just fe- I don't know what it feels like. Do you know I spent the next 10 minutes trying to convince that guy that murder was sin and wrong and he would not admit it? He would not say the words. And it was I know in his heart he knew it was wrong. But he knew that if he admitted there was a moral code, watch this, he would have to admit there's a moral code giver and that's what he will not do. They are willfully ignorant because they do not want to come to Jesus Christ. Ignorant willfully. That's why you can't use these arguments to lead them to Christ. Hopefully you can break a wall down to share the gospel. Men are at the core of their lives willfully ignorant. So there you have it. I hope that helped you. I hope you took those notes. I hope you have thought through these things because whether you like it or not, we live in a secular society. You will go to secular campuses as well you should and be able to confidently stand and defend the faith and defend your existence and your belief that there is a God. You don't need to be intimidated. You don't need to just sit back and go, well, maybe you got a point. No, they don't. They have no points. Nothing. All the truth of the logical facts are on our side. Ask them where they're going to be in 100 years. Where are you going to be in a hundred years? I don't know. Tell them I know. (laughs) Who came first? The chicken or the egg? Well, God came first. That's who came first. (laughs) Look at that salmon swimming upstream, spawning at the very same spot it did every year, making that trip, knowing the exact spot it's supposed to spawn. Are they intelligent? No. They have intelligent design placed within them by an intelligent being.